Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From the indie podcast creators that brought you Microphones and Monsters, A Fool's Quest, Ethereal Embrace, and other hit podcasts, comes a new actual play podcast, Dread Tech Incorporated. Set in the futuristic cyberpunk setting of Dark City, our three DDA special agents, Nitz with his drone blip, Sylvia Rivera, the shape-shifting social media icon, and Zaus, the Zoog heavy gunner, take on the evil corporation Yogsonic Dynamics in an attempt to bring the heinous actions of the corporation into the public spotlight. But will our heroes be prepared for the unworldly supernatural horror that lurks below the corporation's front? Follow Dread Tech Incorporated wherever you get your podcast to find out. This podcast involves topics such as violence, sex, and mental illness. If this might disturb you or those around you, please reconsider listening. It's all right. Privacy and confidentiality have been protected, with personal information removed when possible. If you ever feel unsafe or suicidal, please call your local crisis center, emergency services, or national hotline. In the U.S., the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Remember, you matter. Hey, this is Kate. Of all of the careers out there in the world, one of the ones that fascinates me is acting. I don't fully understand it, and I think it's one of those things that you have to feel drawn to, and I don't know how to explain it. When I was a kid, I felt like I knew a lot of people who wanted to be actors and that at some level, I was supposed to want that. So I tried and I hated being on stage. I got overwhelmed with people looking at me. 
And I really got up in my head about screwing things up and, 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 you, you see what I mean? And somehow podcasting is fine with me. I, even though I'm making eye contact with my guests when I'm recording and I talk with my hands and as we know, I screw up on the regular, but somehow it sits in a different space for me. Even if I'm voice acting a fictional role, it feels different. So I'm fascinated when I have the opportunity to talk to someone who has chosen acting as their career or one of their careers, because what's that like? And so this episode and the next, I'm talking with actors, but they've expanded beyond acting as their sole source of creative output and income and whatever word you want to apply. Today, I'm talking with a guy named Sean Tyler Foley. He is an actor. He's a speaker. He's an author. He's sort of that, you know, I'm going to do all of these things and reach people in as many ways as I can. And I feel like he's got an important message. Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss. So I am a father, a husband, a musician, actor, performer, seeker of warm beaches, lover of fine chocolate, and uh, I've been performing since I was six years old. Uh, really enjoyed the all aspects of performance from stage, film, television, music, um, and most recently being a, a published author, and that has been uh, omnipresent in every career and vocation that I've chosen since I was 12 years old. Wh which part was the, the writing part, the creativity, the, the performance, yeah, all of it, the performance, the creativity being um, in the public eye. Um, yeah. All of that has really influenced each and every decision that I've made to be perfectly honest from um where I lived, you know, the, when I first moved out on my own, I was going to a fine arts high school and billeted with a family, a few families actually, and then uh, chose not to go back home because once you've tasted that independence in your mid-teens, you want to keep that independence. And so I moved to Vancouver, which was the epicenter of uh, film and television in Canada so that I could, and it was on the West coast. So I would be closer to Hollywood if I did get the chance to, to go down and audition there. Um, and even when I started my own business, um, being able to be the forefront and the trainer and be the face of the business was always, um, something that was easy for me. And, uh, the one bit of the business side that I got correct <laughs> regularly was being the face of my own brand. And, uh, and then even 
now doing the speaker training, um, getting to be on stage, but then getting to see other people excel at it too, and come out of their shells and tell their stories. Um, it's been a, a wonderful influence in my life. So let's let's start by going back a little. What would would like would people you as an actor would people recognize you from? you know, television more or from stage more or? Well, if they recognized me at all, which is <laughs> slim to none, it would be uh, probably from my film work. Um, I, I, I was what would be considered a professional day player as are 95% of the actors in the union. Uh, you don't know us. We're the people who come in and say one or two or 10 or eight lines, whatever. Um, fill the story and it goes on. Uh, so I was never a big Hollywood star, but, um, you know, I, if you Google or do an IMDb search of Sean Tyler Foley, you find really quickly all the, all the fun things that I was in. Uh, most notably for me, the one that I enjoyed the most was door to door, which was a wonderful film starring Helen Mirren and William H. Macy. And they, um, Helen, got nominated for a Golden Globe for her performance in it. And the scene that they used at the Golden Globes to showcase the great Dame Helen Murin when she won uh, was actually the diner scene that me, her and Bill uh, had performed. So that was that was fun because my phone blew up for about a week after that, um, where everybody was like, were you, were you at the Golden Globe? So I was like, well, I was, I was on the Golden Globes. <laughs> There's a, a subtle difference of not sitting at the table with them, but I'm definitely uh, was, was in that clip. So it was a, a really, um, it was a really fun time for me. And, but to answer your question, no, most people uh, wouldn't recognize me uh, because most of my work was purposely meant to, to blend into the background and just propel a story forward. Well, but I think that matters though. You know, people pay attention to we consciously pay attention to the person on center stage, but if you get rid of the background, now it's just people talking to themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and it makes it kind of pointless. Like I think that that's an important. Well, and it's it's a honestly, I wouldn't have had it any other way because the nice thing is, is you still get to do the craft, you still get to act, you still get. I mean, I still get residual checks. You know, 25, 30 years later from the performances that I did, um, which always makes my wife smile. She, she, I, to this day, I don't think she fully understands <laughs> why residuals are a thing. And she calls it my mad movie star money. And I do a little dance every time the check comes in. And I'm like, ah, ha, ha. and they're never big, you know, like 20, 30, 40, $50 here and there for, for shows every couple of months. But, you know, it's, it's free money and I'm always happy to get it. But um, I still have some form of anonymity. Like I look at some of these people who are massively famous and it always seems fun from the outside. You know, you're like, Oh, that, you know, how to be invited to the red carpet and to go and do that thing. But you're also doing a press junket all the time. Like I, when my book came out, I got really exhausted about three months into the press junket and it was a virtual press junket because it came out during a lockdown. So <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have to go and do all the book signings that was actually scheduled to do. I just had to sit in my studio in my basement and, and uh, go on podcast after podcast. But, um, you know, between 180 podcasts last year, a couple dozen TV appearances and, you know, a couple dozen radio appearances, 
it, it was exhausting just doing that. So I, I don't know that I would have wanted the fame. And I, to be honest, like I said, I don't know that I would change a thing. I, I love being able to go in, show up on a set for a day or two or five and, you know, get to play with some really cool, really amazing performers and then go on my way, walk away from the project and find a new project. That's the other thing too. I'm not, I'm not locked into a role. I'm not that guy from that show. You know, mm-hmm. I, and that I think is, is incredibly freeing too, because it gives me the ability to play pretty much anything um, and, and have my agent submit me for a lot of really um, crazy things too. Like in the last couple of months, I've auditioned for everything from um, historical figures and uh, uh, religious cult leaders um, to, you know, happy fathers and um, you know, even uh, uh, I played, a, I got to audition for a role um, playing a, a fashion designer. So like all of those things are just like, I don't know that if, I had got typecast into or had the fame, right? Some people just get kind of locked into those tracks and I have a lot more freedom of, of exploration for who I get to do within my craft and then, you know, do my business too. And, and, and be able to have that as, as income as well. So I, I wouldn't change it. So tell me, tell me about your book. Oh, the power to speak naked. Um, is yeah, that's the one. (laughs) That's the one is, uh, 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 to be honest, it's it's my love letter to being on the stage. I um, I love public speaking, and I've had the great privilege of being able to have my voice heard now for over thirty six years. And I I I owe everything that I am and and my development and who I've become as a person to getting the opportunity to be on stage at six years old. And over the last you know, 15, 20 years, and in particular, the last decade, being able to make public speaking um, my main source of income has been amazing because now I'm not locked to other people's words that I have to say. Now I get to say my own words in my own way and my own choosing. And that, uh, I mean, I just, that kind of freedom, not everybody gets to experience in their life and their job and and in their career. And so I'm, I'm really blessed, but I also had a lot of people who would come and say, well, how do you do that? Like, how do you just get up on stage and and talk and keep people engaged? And I would, I found myself saying the same thing over and over again to the same demographic of people. And eventually a friend of mine and great mentor said, you know, you should really put that into a book. And I went, well, I just, I don't want to, I'm not a writer, right? Like you get that kind of the self-doubt and all the, the fun stuff, imposter syndromes that come with it. And I go, oh, I, I'm not a writer. And uh, she said, well, most people who write books aren't writers, particularly the nonfiction stuff. Um, she said, and there's lots of options around there. So what we ended up doing was compiling a whole bunch of my training videos and transcribing them. And that became the book. And one of the things that for me is very cringeworthy in reading the book and apparently is one of the great um, things for a reader who has read the book is that it is my, literally my voice. Like, it's, you know, my phrasing and how I speak is, is very much captured within the pages because it is almost straight transcription of all of my training videos. And uh, 
I would like to think that I sound a little bit more intelligent in my head than what it comes across on the page. But um, I, I like it. Apparently, it's a very, very easy read. Um, and I the nice thing about the book is that it's all from my own experience. Like it's not um, I'm not shooting on anybody. These are all things that I've been doing for coming up four decades to find fun and joy in being on stage. And really that's, that's the main key to uh, having an engaging presentation is to be enjoying what you're doing. If you're not enjoying it, your audience won't enjoy it. And it, and it becomes quite obvious really fast. So that's, that's how the book came to be. And a lot of people are terrified about the idea of public speaking and the concept of it. You know, I remember learning at some point in college about they they did a study of phobias and that the number two phobia on the list was death and the number one phobia on the list was public speaking which means that at a funeral more people would like to be in the casket than delivering the eulogy eulogy right and Mm -hmm. i've never had a problem talking in public like i'm pretty comfortable with it and as a forensic psychologist specifically i have to quite often Mm -hmm. i have to testify in court and one of the classes that i took was on what it wasn't acting but it was like a a public speech slash performance type class because me that you hear on my podcast or you know yelling at my kids on some random Tuesday or whatever, that's not the me that takes the stand. You have to have a certain professional comportment and way of speaking. You can't say fuck very often to the judge. Like judges don't like that. So you have to sort of button it down. And it's not just about the language that you use, but the way that you comport yourself and carry yourself. That's all performance. And I remember some of the people that were in the class with me saying, like, this feels like they're asking us to lie. And like, we all, that's, that's how humans function. Yeah. Is that we, 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 it's called image management rather than lying is putting on a different face at different times. We perform all the time. That's just how people do social conformity. And uh, it's funny that you mention it because my wife, one of the reasons I do podcast from the my studio uh, is because as supportive as my wife is, and she is very supportive of all I do, she hates listening to me when I'm recording an interview or when I'm doing a training session. Because she knows Tyler Foley, as you said, the you know husband who's hanging out on Tuesday, cooking dinner and uh, reading the book to our, our daughter and, and putting her to bed. And then there is Sean Tyler Foley, who is, you know, professional actor, author, speaker, and trainer. And the difference between Tyler and Sean Tyler is, um, in my opinion, not much, but there's a difference. And for um, a human being who spends 90% of her life with me, uh, she doesn't like Sean Tyler <laughs> because he's he's a little bit more gregarious. Um, and I have I have the voice, right? If I'm when uh, particularly in a professional setting, when I am required to be speaking for a long period of time, I actually do have a very trained voice for it. So one of the things that I'm doing constantly if I'm speaking is breathing through my nose. So I have a cadence to my voice that I wouldn't normally have 
if I'm just in general conversation with somebody in my house. I also have a, a considerably lower tone when, and I, I don't know that considerably is is correct, but if I was to adopt um, my just normal speaking voice, it is probably on a piano, we'll say it's uh, a D or an E. And in a broadcast scenario, or if I'm on stage, I'm lowering it down to probably about a, a C scale, where at just a slightly lower resonance so that I can sustain for longer my voice. It just helps keep the vocal cords a little bit more relaxed and, and just helps me speak longer. But she knows the voice. So she'll be <laughs> she'll be upstairs and she'll kind of if I haven't shut the the door to the studio, she'll <laughs> I can hear it just slightly click because she doesn't want to have to hear Sean Tyler Foley. She'll wait for Tyler to come up the the stairs and I'm always entertained by that. That's pretty funny. See, and, and now for me, I have a similar thing in, that I trained myself out of using that voice for the podcast. That when I decided I was going to start a podcast, it initially was true crime because talk about what you know, right? That's yeah. the easiest thing. I already went to school for a thousand years. I didn't want to have to go learn more new stuff. Well, Guess what? As a podcaster, you got to learn a lot of new stuff anyway, whatever. But I started off as true crime and then worked my way out of that area after a while. But I thought about certain things and one of them was, I don't want it to be an interview show where I ask you a question, you give me an answer, and then I act like, you know, Barbara Walters, that's an excellent point. I'm for visual joke for those who are are listening is when you pick up the pencil and you gesture like with somebody like somehow pointing at you with my pen makes it more profound whatever it is you said when we all or know that, what yet. that means i didn't listen but yeah you lean in and bite the pen after saying that it was a good point that's <laughs> even more effective that next oh, time <laughs> next time next time yeah so there there's that it, you know but i wanted to to connect with people and I wanted to not use jargon and I wanted to share stories of my own life when appropriate. You know, it's your, this is your episode. You know, I wouldn't have an episode if you weren't here talking to me for it. So it's not like, Hey, come sit and listen to me for an hour. Like mm -hmm. that's not what it's about. But at the same time, I, as I'm doing right now, like I, I wanted to be able to go back and forth. And that's the thing that whether I'm working with a client or whether I'm on the stand in a courtroom, I don't get to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're when you're talking to a serial killer or someone who has attempted a major crime or whatever, you don't want to be like, hey, let me tell you about my kids. Yeah. Yeah. You want to keep that one close to your vest. For the most part. And and in fact, I didn't practice under my married name. Mm -hmm. And that was a deliberate choice so that I would be that one degree of difficulty, more difficult for someone to swing by the house on that same random Tuesday, busy day. And so that, that all was part of it. But another part was when testifying and when doing, you know, assessments or evaluations, I would bring my voice down lower mm -hmm. because you want to sound calmer. You want to sound more like you're in control. And so I would deliberately slow down and talk more like this. Because if I get excited and I speak in my upper register, 
you, especially being female, get less respect. And you're already fighting for a fair degree of respect and you're already in this emotionally evocative arena. The last thing you want is to derail somebody's case because you got excited and flailed on the stand, you know. So I'd said, I, no, I want, it, I, want it, I want it to be okay that I stuttered. I want it to be okay that I'm an idiot on my own show. So I kind of made yeah. the reverse. Like I hear, I don't, my, my husband probably still has never heard my testifying voice, my professional voice which is yeah. a good sign because it means we've never <laughs> been in a courtroom at the same time, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> or that he's done something that requires your analysis, even though it would be a conflict of interest for you to do it. It could be, but you know, the whole spousal privilege thing, all that is, is a privilege. It's not a law. I can testify against my spouse. I just can't be imposed and impelled to do so. Just trivia, just throwing it out there. Yeah, just, just pointing it out. Well, and one of the things that I, um, I'm really glad, first of all, that you were aware of and that you pointed out, and I would love to discuss just briefly, is that dynamic um, with the female voice and and literally the, the physicality of a female voice being slightly higher. Because um, the thing is, is, both male and female, when we are delivering, um, you know, a story, if we're talking about something, we, we have the ability to get excited. It is a natural physiological response when you get excited to have your voice get into a higher and upper register. And what I think is uh, shameful, frankly, right now, is that if I get going, I'm excited and passionate. And if you get going, you're frenetic and chaotic. Well, why? And um, in fact, it, it that very dichotomy within and double standard um, is one of the big driving factors to why I wrote the book. In fact, my, in my dedication, it's to my daughter. And it says, may you always have the courage to speak up for what you believe in and the confidence that your voice will be heard. Because I grew up in a household of primarily women. My father passed away when I was six years old in order to make ends meet and to have support structures and stuff. My mom ended up letting out rooms in the house. At one point we had eight women in the house um, from my mom, my sister to the other uh, roommates and boarders that were in there. And I was the only guy, even the dog was female. And uh, one of the common things that I heard, because, you know, you're little and you're impressionable and, and people don't pay attention to the eight-year-old boy who's sitting in the corner, um, the, you know, the, the conversations around the dinner table were about the, you know, underlying misogyny of society. And th that was very impressionable on me. And I'm constantly aware of, um, am I silencing? somebody or is there a male privilege that i'm uh that i'm using and uh, i want to make sure that the the female voice is heard um and and i it really it, you know it's it's omnipresent in me having a daughter knowing that currently in society that she has to fight harder to have her voice heard than me and it really upsets me to be quite honest it's infuriating you know, I have always done assessment psychology rather than therapy. I just not my thing. And for a while before I went into forensic work, I ran a learning disabilities ADHD assessment clinic. That was a thing 
that I did. That means that I have a nuanced and in-depth understanding of what ADHD is, what dyslexia is, what it isn't, how to make those determinations. I know how to write the reports. I also have a very thorough understanding of the IEP, Individualized Education Plan, and 504, which is like an IEP, but not so intense. Mm -hmm. Those laws, the Americans with Disabilities Act laws and associated legislation. I'm very familiar with that stuff. As we said before, I have four kids. All four of them are on either IEPs or 504 plans. Two of them have ADHD, one has an anxiety disorder, and then my littlest one is adopted from a trauma background. And so she has a whole mess of stuff that she's swimming upstream over. And I say that to say that you would think, I would think, I did think that when my kids' difficulties started to appear in school, that no problem, I will go to their IEP and 504 meetings, it'll be completely fine. And in a way it was, in the sense that they weren't like conflict-ridden or difficult, but I could not get them to hear me. And often it was me in a room with other women. So mm -hmm. it wasn't an a overt gender dichotomy, it was just a case of I couldn't get them to hear my voice. And I finally got, I got frustrated because my oldest especially was really struggling in school. And one of the unwritten rules around an IEP is that you only get one after your grades start to fall. Hmm. And I'm like, doesn't it seem like these should be in place to prevent the grades from falling? But my oldest was coming up into junior year of high school. And so we don't have time for grades to fall. It's sort of crunch time if college is going to be an option and so on. And I could see that both grades and morale were tanking. And mm -hmm. the 504 was not cutting it. We needed, all he was asking for was what in my day was called a study hall. Yes. Just a period of time during the school day when the teachers would all be available to the students to ask questions and to have help advocating for the difficulties that they were having, you know, to have somebody mm -hmm. walk them from classroom to classroom if necessary to help them. And so I said to my husband, I was like, this, we just had the 504 meeting like a month ago and things are only getting worse. I'm going to ask for a reevaluation. I want you to come with me. I don't actually want you to speak in the meeting. I just want you to physically come into the room, wear your tie, look stern. My husband's 6'4", big guy. Mm -hmm. So just walk in and sit there. You know, basically sit, sit still, look pretty. And that meeting went faster than any other meeting I had ever had, and they gave us everything I asked for. Yeah. And I was livid because it was clearly his presence was the major difference in the room. And he didn't even use his voice. But the fact yeah. that he was there and might use it was enough. Yeah. And that that is exactly why I am dedicated to the work that I'm doing. You know, I especially watching my mom, my mom is one of the most hardest working individuals I've ever seen in my life. Like she, she had to raise two children as a widow. I, she was barely in her thirties 
And that wasn't how life was supposed to be for her. And I watched her upgrade her skill set, um, take evening classes when she could, uh, pick up little odd job stuff, work relentlessly, you know, 18 hours a day, six days a week, um, just to just to make sure that my sister and I didn't go without anything. And one of the things that frustrated me the most was that she couldn't advocate on her behalf. You know, she would she would say these things and they would fall on deaf ears. But if a male counterpart pointed out how hard she was working, all of a sudden it got noticed. And that, you know, that drove me insane. My sister right now um, had, again, her plans interrupted. She wanted to and is going to be a lawyer. But when she started law school, she ended up uh, meeting her partner and getting pregnant and uh, and having two children mid law degree really interrupted the second part of, you know, finishing up and, and actually uh, getting called to the bar. And so there was a 10 year hiatus for her to do it. And I, I, again, I see, you know, from a male perspective, she could have just gone back, but from a female perspective, they took the break and then watching her, um, even when she's doing uh, her, putting together her arguments, you know, cause I, I love the law. I, I, I'm fascinated by it. Um, both me and my sister always have been, we were, you know, I remember at 16 getting my uh, first traffic violation ticket um, very quickly into having my, um, my first car and being fascinated by the court proceedings. Like I argued my ticket just so that I could go into court. I was, I was definitely, definitely guilty of the offense, but I also <laughs> recognized that I, was innocent until proven guilty, uh, that uh, the Crown had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that I was guilty of the offense. And uh, I just wanted to see what would happen. And I, I'll never forget it. It was so monumental for me because um, the officer didn't show up and, and the court and the, the ticket was withdrawn. The charges were withdrawn. And as soon as that happened, I was like, huh, I will do this forever. And then I remember the first, the next time I did it, the officer showed up and I wasn't prepared. And then I vowed to myself and never have that happen again. And uh, to this day, it, it entertains my wife because I like, she, she laughs at me. I have a favorite um, justice at the courthouse who I'm like, Oh yeah, he's good. And crown prosecutor. I'm like, Oh yeah, no, I, I like that guy. He's fair. And this one, he's not fair. I don't like him. And she's like, you shouldn't be in, traffic court enough that this is an actual thing and like but sometimes it's fun to just go and watch like i don't i don't need to get a speeding ticket to go to traffic court traffic court can just be a fun place to go because it's just i don't know i'm fascinated by the process but i, I know that like even in those scenarios my wife has me if she if she ever has a thing i speak up on her behalf for that exactly what you were describing in your scenario because just having that male presence all of a sudden it has more gravitas for some reason. And it just shouldn't be. It just shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and you, you know, the, the same idea of women get criticized for the pitch of their voice, the tone of their voice, the speed with which we speak, how much vocal fry we use, whether there's enough, whether there's too much, you know, like the, I used to, as a podcaster, when I, when I started, I, I, I really thought what I, I started because I needed a hobby that was just mine, mm -hmm. it was just me when I wasn't being mom or partner or daughter. Cause at the time my father had moved in with us and 
it was a lot and I thought I'd do like 20 episodes and be done and it gets its hooks into you when you when you find the right thing whatever the thing is and I think performing is what it is because I I've been on disability for a while I broke my back which don't don't do that just trust me on this one and so I was kind of I was just edgy and feeling sort of lost and feeling like I had all this education and all this information and I missed feeling productive and creative and here's the thing that I can do without leaving the house mm-hmm. all by myself cool let's let's figure that out let's see if I like it and it turns out I did but when I first started as I think a lot of performers do I read my reviews and there was I think one or two that were helpful like the positive ones are great that's fine but you get 40 positive ones to every one negative one and i can recite for you the negative ones mm-hmm. you know and the positive ones are just like well maybe they're just being nice like somehow we do that to ourselves i don't know but some of the negative ones were fair were constructive feedback or were i don't know going out of their way to tell me your show isn't for me which i'm like thanks your review isn't for me like what <laughs> what are we doing yeah. here <laughs> But a lot of the the negativity came down to, I don't like how your voice sounds. Yeah. I don't like the language that you use, either whether it be cursing or, or whether it be that I'm just too casual with language. They wanted me to be more formal with jargon, and I'm not going to do that. Like, I, I was trained, don't use jargon on the stand. Mm-hmm. That's like the worst thing you can do because it just alienates the jury and they t- tune you out. And so if you want to be seen as useful don't use jargon you learn it all and then you immediately stop using it there got it but to have these critiques of my the the sound the literal sound of my voice like what do you want why i can't figure (laughs) out how to finish that question but man that sucks like that's awful yeah it you know it to me it's like criticizing somebody for the color of their eyes Okay, well, you don't have to like brown eyes or blue eyes or green eyes or hazel or whatever color, right? But that has that I can't I can't change the color of my eyes. I can maybe work on inflection of my voice and, and changing it up a little bit. But I, I think it's the frequency in which a a female voice would be criticized for that versus a male voice, mm-hmm. right? Like you have somebody like Gilbert Gottfried. Who's, whose voice is literally nails on a chalkboard and he's celebrated for a distinct and unique voice. Um, but then, you know, I would say that in the same realm, someone like Joan Rivers, uh, who has a very distinct voice, probably wasn't as successful because of the nature of the tone of her voice. Very gravelly, very high, very nasally. Um, you know, why one would have been a more sick, I don't know that. Gilbert Godfrey was more successful than Joan Rivers was, um, you know, and Joan Rivers had an amazing career. But the the fact that more people were critical of how Joan Rivers sounded than Gilbert Godfrey, right? Like you don't hear a lot of people pick apart his the tone of the voice in which he uses for delivery. Uh, but yet it was always a constant with Joan Rivers. And uh, and we I could go through probably a thousand examples of that and why. You know, and I'm like I said, I'm hyper aware of it. I see it with my mom, I see it with my sister, see it with my wife, and I hope that I don't have to see it with my daughter. And I'm I'm really conscious too, like even in in my communication with her, um, 
because she's six and she's precocious and she's inquisitive and and learning the world and you know there are times where she is up in my grill and i really don't want to have to i just need some quiet but i'm very conscious of how i request that knowing that it's for me and not for her i'm not asking her to shut up right or be quiet what i'm saying is can usually i'm trying to find language around you know daddy needs a couple minutes of 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 quiet time for him so can i myself go and have some quiet time and then me and you can have this conversation or i can answer those questions for you i just i need i need a moment of of silence for me and you can go and, and say whatever and, and come back with me with with some questions let's go over that but i want her to know that again it's it's super important to me that she knows that it's not her it's me that i i need the time and that if she has a question i want to hear what it is even if it, in reality, in the back of my head, I'm going, oh, kid, we've talked about this like four times already today. I today, don't care yeah. about poopsies. I don't care about poopsies. Right? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it, with, with my kids, our rule is always from when they were little, when they, that started to happen is I would say, okay, it's time for the five minute rule, which was you need to wait five minutes to ask your question because my brain is full right now. So I need you to give me five minutes to let my brain empty out. And that gives me five minutes to chill down. But also if you as a six-year-old or a nine-year-old or 12, whatever, if you can still remember your question in five minutes, then it's worth answering. But chances yeah. are that five minutes are going to go by and you're going to forget what you went to ask me in the first place. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful thing because that provides structure and rule that everybody knows that it's because uh, one of the things that I find in my practice when I'm coaching, there are usually two distinct triggers for why people are afraid to speak in public. And it's usually a centers around either a parental interaction where they were constantly being told to be quiet, or it was usually, you know, early elementary school and they were called upon by a teacher to answer a question that they either didn't know or they got wrong and the class laughed at them. And those are usually those two big trigger moments where they equated using their voice in public as a negative and that their voice didn't matter or their opinion didn't matter or their opinion was somehow shameful and i mean and you of all the hosts that i've ever been on will understand this better than anyone else it's amazing how formative that can be and when it really is nothing more than a single event that took place and doesn't have to be a standard you know, I think one of the greatest gifts that I was ever given as a six-year-old was being on stage before I was ever um, afraid to be on stage. Like I, I had, I couldn't, you know, everybody knows you know, when you're four five, six years old, you don't have fear. Fear is a learned behavior for the most part. And I, I wasn't afraid of those public interactions yet. And I got to hear applause and feel rewarded on stage. And so stage has always been a safe place for me. It's been a happy space. It's been where I got to play and explore and learn who I was and, and have my voice heard and used. And um, I, I'm really conscious of that with, with Kenzie because it's really important to me that she knows that it is valued. But as you said, we're humans. And so I want to make sure that I um, don't further a pattern for her, that I support her, her voice. But like you said, at six years old, if she can remember the question, then it was important. If she can't remember the question, 
<laughs> Hooray! Yeah, <laughs> one, exactly. One yeah. Well, I mean, it's been interesting with my my youngest, Danny. Um, she was like I said, she came from a, a trauma, trauma, traumatic and abusive background in many ways, and she first came to us because I knew her biological mother and her biological mother said we need help for many many reasons i have nowhere to live i have no family to rely on can actually it was can you take the baby and i'll i need to check myself into the hospital at first and you know of course like we my husband and i have a sort of now spoken policy because it's happened enough that if somebody if you can help then you do and that gives space for if you can't help that's okay but if you can't help we do and of course we can help and you can try a little harder when there's a baby involved. And so it was just just after Danny's second birthday that they moved here. And four months later, we had to invite her biological mother not to live here anymore because of some really unhealthy behaviors that were going on. And it was all this tremendous shock for me because I, I knew a certain side of her. She, was, she used to be our nanny. For, for a while for my own children and then to see her as an abusive mother really kind of tilted my whole world and so we ultimately had to ask her to to leave and we gave her the choice of you can take the baby with you or you can leave her with us and we'll take care of her until you get your act together a little bit and two weeks later she said i'll, I'll leave the baby with you and two weeks later she called and said i'm never going to get better you just keep her and we've never seen her since then and so another Four or five months later, the adoption was finalized, and that's been it. Like it's been almost seven years now, I guess six years. And um, people told us she, my my daughter, Danny, won't remember. She won't remember this stuff. Well, trauma memories are different. She remembers things crystal clear that happened before she was two years old that are appalling and terrifying to me. And I would love to be able to scrub that from her, but also. People would say like she'll just she'll get better like magically she'll just get better like you get over covid you'll get over trauma like these things that just they don't just work that way and one thing specifically very specifically that i see evidence of of danny's trauma is in her speaking voice is that she speaks where i've had a number of doctors and teachers and the like ask me if she's deaf because she speaks without a lot of diaphragm support and she doesn't enunciate very well at all and so she speaks in the way that hearing people are used to thinking of what deaf people sound like but that mm -hmm. sort of almost echoey sound to her and not a lot of projection and when she does project she yells rather mm -hmm. than projects you know and and so it's and it's funny because i am hard of hearing and so it's like I'm deaf, but I don't sound like it. And she's not deaf, but does sound like it. And so this is a fun com combination to put us together in a room and try and hear each other. But it's because they literally didn't speak to her as a baby. Like one of the earliest trauma PTSD triggers that I discovered for her was the morning after, you know, they show up at the house her biological mother got her set up in her pack and play. I kind of shook my husband awake and was like, hey, there's a baby sleeping in your office. Just FYI, I'll explain later. And the next day, you know, I got the, the biological mother checked into the hospital. And the next day, my 
biological kids went off to school, my husband went off to work, and I'm home alone with this two-year-old who's kind of looking at me, and I'm looking at her like, <laughs> well, well, now what, you know? And at some point she asked me, I asked her, what, what, what would you like for lunch? And she said something, but she said it in this muffled way that she has. And I said, what? And I wasn't even, I wasn't facing her and I wasn't standing near her because I, I didn't know what, she, I knew she had some stuff going on. I didn't know what was going So I was careful to sort of 45 degree angle from her. And I was just like, what, what would you like for lunch? And she hit the ground in like in a duck and cover maneuver. And later I learned that no one had ever asked her a question before, that people in her family didn't believe that kids were smart enough to ask questions. So you just told kids what to do. You didn't give choices. You didn't ask questions. You didn't speak to them. And so here's a child who's two years old who found questions terrifying because on the few moments where she was given a choice, there was a right answer. You know, do you want the blue car or the red car? And if she chose the red car, but the right answer was the blue car, she would get hurt. So questions were dangerous and terrifying to her. And she's the only toddler I've ever dealt with who didn't ask any questions. Because why would you? How would you know to? Yes. You know? And so it's just sort of that, that the literal use of one's voice. And she's better with it. She still doesn't ask a ton of questions, but she understands and I think believes us that we will tell her the things that we need her to know or to do. But if we ask her a thing, then we really mean it's okay for her to make a decision about what do you want for lunch or do you want the blue car or the red car? But that's been years. And there are still times where you can tell it just she gets overwhelmed and she forgets how to make eye contact and she forgets how to speak. And I, and I, at the same time, I struggle with, I like, if we've been asked, does she have autism? I don't really know. Like, I don't think she was born with it, but I don't really know. And I don't want to mask. I don't want her to mask that. Yeah. You know, so if she really doesn't feel emotion, if she really doesn't feel like projecting, I don't want her to. So it's this, man, parenting's hard, but the voice is so fundamental there that you don't think about it. Yeah. And the language that you grow up around and how that influences you, um, you know, and especially this, I mean, this is a fascinating, fascinating case. Cause you go from two extremes and I, uh, you know, and, and amazing too, because you uh, of all the people who could parent her will have the recognition and insight into what's going on and the ability to say, well, you know, I don't want you to mask and I don't want you to, to try and be somebody that you're not um, so that we can, can continue to have an authentic use of your voice um, and hopefully find that path. So I think, you know, but it, it, you know, it, it just goes to show how critical it is in anyone's social development, because it's how, you know, how we've communicated for eons within our, our cultures as primarily orally, you know, um, the written word and consumption of, of text is a fairly recent thing in the last three to 400 years. And really, really, really um, has exploded in the last 30 to 40. So th it's the, it is the voice. And I think that's actually one of the, <laughs> if I could pinpoint a downfall to society, it's the fact that we've become so reliant on text um, to communicate 
because there's so much that cannot be communicated through the written word that requires um, the audio to go with it. We need to hear the inflections. We also need the visual. I need to see see your eyes, see your reaction, see your physiology to the words that I'm using. Right? If you were to read a, a transcription of a conversation between you and your youngest daughter, it would make absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. But to be able to see that interaction, even the one that you just explained, the what and then and the the duck and cover, to see it and to hear it described makes sense. If you were to read the transcription, there would be absolutely no context to that whatsoever. And the fact that we have gotten away from being face to face to communicate for the most part. It's one of the reasons why it, through COVID, I refused to do um, one of my training sessions. Most of the my peers in the industry all pivoted to virtual presentations and they could, you know, if you want to learn about how to be better in the stock market, sure. I can train that virtually. If you want to, you know, even Tony Robbins did his, he's done his unleashed power within uh, virtually. And, and frankly, in my opinion, he it translated about 90%, still not the same as being in person. And, and for my events, if I'm going to train you, to find your voice, I need to hear you, see you, and feel you in the room, in the room, because there's a lot of things that can be masked digitally. Like I can get closer to a microphone. So if I'm, you know, if I'm being very soft spoken, I can still get closer to the mic. And and maybe you don't know how soft spoken I am. But if I was to get you into the real world, now all of a sudden you don't make any sense. And so I need, I need to see, I need to have my participants physically with me and and i and i frankly i would i I won't go to a virtual i'll maybe do a hybrid and let people you know get uh on demand access afterwards to be able to review material Uh, i think there's nothing wrong with that but for what i do um i think we need that human interaction i think we need to be in the room with the people that we're sharing our stories with that we are talking to and, and I, I really do think that eventually we will find a way to augment the technologies that we have so we can get back to communicating the way that we have for centuries and eons and, and in a face-to-face in a communal way, as opposed to the, the coldness of text. I mean, it's funny that you bring it up because I just the other day was talking to a dear friend of mine about how much I missed doing, I did both forensic correctional work inside the prison and I also did crisis work so like in the emergency room or in people's homes or schools or that kind of thing and so the ER is sort of your first step into the system and the prison is often the end of the line for people and so I kind of got to see people along that spectrum of time and I miss it I miss it tremendously but they're surprisingly physical jobs you know, walking around the campus of a hospital or the grounds of a prison. I, I mean, I, felt, I always felt safe there, but I, st- I just can't, I, I can walk, but I can't walk those distances and at the speeds you need to go sometimes. And I wouldn't be able to go through some of the physical training that you have to do for it. And so I miss it. And my friend made a fairly sort of offhand, well, why don't you do it virtually then? And I had, I think, a fairly similar reaction of you can't do that. Like you can't, what do you do? Like I I could fake it, 
But the reason I was good at my job is because I'm observing the totality of the person in front of me. I, you can't tell right now whether I am, you know, about to point my pen at you or whether I'm, you know, petting a cat or, or flipping you off. Like you don't know what I'm doing off camera right now. And you, you know, sometimes I'm asking you very simple questions in the room, but I'm watching your hands. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm asking you simple questions. I'm asking you questions that I already know the answer to on purpose, because I want to see what you look like at baseline when I'm asking you low pressure, low stress sorts of questions. So that then when I ask you, for instance, so I got your talk screen back today, what's going to pop positive on that? When I check your chart, I already know the answer to that question too, because I don't go in and talk to you until I've already seen your chart. But when I ask it that way, that's for some people, a very high pressure, high stress question. And I watch their hands. I watch their posture. You know, their shoulders will draw up or just the speed at which they reply or what happens to eye contact. It's not whether or not they make it. It's whether it changes from what they had been doing before things like that, right? It's, there's not a right or wrong way to make eye contact, but we all have our defaults. And if your default suddenly changes, I'm not going to write it down, but I'm going to take note of it. And I'm going to write it down yeah. as soon as I'm out of the room, you know, and yeah. all of that is stuff that I can't do that on zoom because 99% of the people that I talked to, let's say in the, in the hospital, when I was figuring out you know, are they safe to go home or do they need to be admitted? 99% of the people I talked to just wanted to go home, yeah. either for healthy reasons or not for healthy reasons. They didn't want to be admitted. So they're going to say and do whatever they have to say and do to get sent home. And it's a lot easier on camera or to say, oops, I'm having technology issues. Got to turn off the camera. So sorry. And now you only got to use your voice, mm -hmm. right? I don't even know what facial expressions you're making. It, it, it wouldn't work. Like I, I couldn't do my job if I'm not in the, the physical space that you're in. Yeah, no. And, and it, 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 it's true. And the funny thing is, is that is one side, particularly with you, with the, with, um, forensic psychology. Uh, I had, uh, one of my first clients that I had was absolutely petrified of public speaking. And she's actually um, uh, a relationship therapist, uh, specifically with um, uh, sexual health. And she um, wanted to expand her practice and bring on other uh, practitioners so that they could broaden kind of the, the scope of, of who they could help. And so she started to do that. And then she was seeing that there was a real disparity, particularly here in Canada for, with access. You know, we have a lot of indigenous communities that are very, very, very remote who tend to need the help the most and get it the least from just a physical distance perspective. And she wanted to create a virtual practice where they could log on and meet with a counselor face-to-face -face as opposed to over the phone. Cause as you said, you really, you know, it's not the greatest environment, but at least now you have visual cues and she recognized the visual component of it and technology at that point had advanced, but she was terrified to talk about this, to get funding for it. 
And she just, she could not, she just could not get in front of people to discuss it. And mostly because other forms of uh, therapy and discussion all said the same thing. You need to have that person in the room because you need, so there are so many of these hidden clues that you, you can't receive uh, just through video. And she acknowledged it. And she's like, yes, yes, no, you're right. I agree. But would you not agree that something is better than nothing? We have this entire region who is being left out because uh, we just don't have people there. So surely something has to be better than nothing. But she was so anxiety riddled with the idea of, of stepping forward. And, and again, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, societal stuff there. She is an unbelievably attractive woman and very petite, um, openly gay. She's in a, a wonderful uh, relationship with a beautiful woman herself, very supportive of what she's doing. So you have this very small, gay, female voice saying, I want to change a system that has a lot of empirical evidence to say you can't do it the way that you want to do it. And that, that was probably the biggest um, win for me as a coach to be able to get her to stand up in front of uh, some venture capitalists and, some, and get people on board and, and run a couple of seminars showing that there was still a need there and that they needed to at least do a trial run for it. And subsequently, fast forward five years later, um, she has grown that empire into a multi-million dollar um, venture that is doing some incredible work, like the testimonials that she gets from the communities that she's serving, so that it's gone from a, a pilot project to a, a fully funded and, and well-supported machine um, makes me happy you know, cause that's the good that I can do in the world, but it makes me so proud of what she did for trying to do it. And now that push is recognizing the limitations within it. As you've pointed out, you, you really want to serve this community. You need to have a physical presence there so that you can really, really um, do your best because there are limitations to the video. And she recognizes that. Um, but I think it, it's interesting from the, the one side to the other, you know, there's something, something's better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And so the video worked for her and yet you're a thousand percent correct with your scenario, particularly the stakes are a lot higher at that point. Uh, when right. You're having right. To well, do that, that was what I was thinking is, is crisis moments is there. That's a, I, I would do telehealth. I would do whether it's therapy one-on-one -on -one or relationship or even certain forms of group therapy, I would do, I would, I think it's just, there's a mindset shift and a training shift that needs to happen in, in terms of concepts like confidentiality and privacy and safety and, and that sort of thing. But it could be done. You know, we, we, we as a culture didn't acknowledge the legitimacy of therapy. 50 or 100 years ago, mm -hmm. pretty much at all. And there are still some holdouts that refuse to acknowledge its legitimacy now. So it's a process. And, you know, any, anything, you know, teaching, likewise, my husband's an educator, and his school went to full remote during the pandemic. And he was able to do that. He's a math professor. He was able to do everything remote. My oldest is an art student. 
So suddenly you're able to do most of the things you need to do remotely and you're able to shift your classes around and that sort of thing. But this year they're a senior and there are some studio classes that just have to happen in studio, in person, even when we're outside of Boston, it's not great. Rates are not good and risks you have to take. And so it's like everything, I think people want to think about it is like all or nothing, like either either therapy can never happen online or it always should happen online. And it's like neither. I think therapy has tremendous potential as a telehealth vessel. But going to my other kid, my youngest doesn't understand that this is real, that this is a person. She sees it as television and can't yeah. interact. So we had her in telehealth for a while during the pandemic. And I finally was like, look, we are wasting everybody's time. She just did not understand that this was a person. You know, she would get up and she would still be talking to the therapist and just get up. Like she'd be pointing at stuff behind the monitor. She just, she just couldn't seem to adjust to the idea that either this is not a person that's in the room or she wouldn't believe that the person was really talking to Danny in yeah. the same way that like if you're watching Dora the Explorer and they're like, can you say something you know whatever yeah. film like like she would do it she would talk back to the tv then because she, you know she's got a kind of a weird sense of what truth and not truth is and so she needs in-person therapy because so my point is just that any i think any system has space to flex and change and bend mm -hmm. but there are limitations to how far it can flex and change yeah. and there comes a point where Ultimately, for a crisis evaluation, I would never be comfortable doing it, you know, virtually. Yeah. There was a time where they were doing them virtually during the pandemic in my area. And I know that because I was contacted and I was just like, I would require so much training that I can't <laughs> attend. So I have to wait. But that's a tough one. Yeah. No. And like you said, I, I I, I'm surprised at how polarized we have become as a society, uh, like this, this need to have clear definition. It, it is either A or B. But there's 24 other letters in the alphabet. Why does it have to be A or B? Why does it have to be black or white? You know, why can't we have the rest of the rainbow involved in that? And uh, I was, I can't remember. Oh, I, I was listening to an interview with uh, John Stewart recently, and he was he was talking about how frustrating it is that nuance has been lost. And then I think um, Russell, uh, oh, what was it? the British comedian? I can't remember. Anyway, he picked it up as well and and ha did a really good uh, follow up, um, breaking down what John Stewart was saying. And uh, John Stewart's comments came from, you know, an, a, literally an offhand comment that he was making um, about reviewing the um, the Harry Potter films. And he was he literally offhand joke because he's Jewish <laughs> and said, isn't it amazing that the goblins that rung the uh, that ran the Gringotts Bank um, had Jewish characteristics, facial features, I think was what he, and he was just, you know, the uh, long nose, I think was what he was making fun of. And it was literally an offhand comment that if you listen to the entire interview it is, is so out of the context, it was just something that popped into his mind. He said it and it came out, 
But then all of a sudden there was this mainstream media that jumped on that um, John Stewart was accusing JK Rowling of anti-Semitism. He's like, where and how, where and how is that even remotely a thing? And he's had to go on this entire campaign to try and correct what has now become the association with his name. And, and I, and I, I laughed at it because again, where's the flex, where's the nuance, where's our ability to have discussion without discord? You know, why can't we have two differing opinions without having to have it as an argument you know what happened to actual debate you know and and why is why is the art of debate no longer a thing why why is it now who can yell the loudest or have you know the most destructive point i just i again as a professional orator i don't understand it because i see nuance in humanity every day and one of the great rewards that I get in the job that I have is in using words effectively to change people's minds and to, you know, win over the hearts of people so that they can see a different point of view. And, and the, this, this black and white, I just, I don't, I don't understand it. I never have. And again, I think that's probably growing up in the arts, right? The first wedding that I ever went to was a gay wedding. (laughs) And I grew up, in uh, a very, very conservative, very rural upbringing. But because I was going into the city and, and, and performing all the time, you know, one of the first weddings that I got to go to, and at the time, it wouldn't have even been a legal wedding. Like it, it, was, it was literally just a ceremony, a celebration of these two people. And the funny thing is, is I, it happened... Uh, almost 10 years to the day before my cousin got married, my cousin has now been divorced. Uh, but the, the, my, the gay couple are still together to this day. And it always makes me smile, um, when I think about it, but, um, you know, why I, I think I was very lucky to be exposed to just different thought at a very young age where I could explore things and, and form my, and, and be in a, an environment that was encouraging me to think of these things on my own. You know, um, because I did have the biblical view that was presented to me as well. And then I had other people say, well, you know, this is how the, the Bible was put together. Do you understand what the Bible is? And then I got fascinated by theology, you know, to, to be able to explore a whole bunch of different religions instead of just looking at one and look at a worldview of religion. And that was just a fascinating thing for me. So, again, I don't, I don't understand the black and white. I wish we could get to a point or at least, I, I don't know if it was ever there. But I'd love it if we could get to a point where subtlety mattered again and it was okay to have a differing opinion because opinion is opinion. It's not fact. And very few things that are stated are fact, including what I just stated. No, I follow. And, and it's, there, there's a, we, we are, I think as humans, we are more comfortable when, when we can categorize, when we can put things in nice, neat little boxes and categorize in ways that make me right and you wrong. That's best. That's what we want. And I see people do that all the time. And I always thought, like, doesn't the responsibility of that overwhelm you? Like, I would just, I don't want to be right. I don't want to be in control. I don't want to be in charge of everything all the time. But apparently some people do. Yeah, I, I think one of the great things as a society, like and I'm, I've been a lifelong learner. I'm constantly, you know, looking for new information. And because 
I know even in my, as I'm into my fifth decade going, how rigid have I become? Like where, where am I not flexing and why? Because a lot of times we, we can be very ignorant to our own boundaries that we've put up. You know, if they, if they haven't been constructed purposefully, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that's, that creep in. And, um, I know for me, as, as weird as it is, it like, cause it's, it seems it's so nonsensical to most, most people, but for me, it was a big deal. I hated cold water. You know, I remember my mom putting me in, in, um, competitive swimming. I loved swimming lessons. I loved learning to swim when I was like six and seven and eight, but, um, in the summer between the sixth and the seventh grade, my mom put me in competitive swimming and, you know, probably cause it was cheap and she needed something for my sister and I to do uh, during the summer that would bridge the gap between our summer camp and when she would get off work. And I understand it now as a parent, but at the time I was like so irritated because I didn't want to swim. And I remember um, the first competition we had a couple first, I, first of all, I didn't understand what all the strokes were. Like everybody else who was in swim club had been swimming for like years. And I didn't know that there was, you know, I didn't know that you needed to dolphin kick in um, a butterfly. I didn't know the difference between a butterfly and a breaststroke and, you know, freestyle, what, what made freestyle freestyle, like you could just swim any style, but the most efficient one was this one. So why would you swim anything other than that? You know, like all of those things I didn't understand. And our first competition was in this, uh, um, open air pool and I'm in Canada. So even in the summertime, it's still damn cold and I don't like cold. I just really don't like cold. And so I, I, I developed this aversion to cold water and swimming and it just didn't like doing it. And I didn't really fully consciously become aware of it until about two years ago. My, one of my favorite things to do uh, before my daughter was born and after uh, my daughter was born was for my wife and I, we love to drive. Like we'll just go on random road trips and it's not uncommon for us to end up eight to 10 hours away from our house and just overnight somewhere. And one of our favorite road trips to do is to go into the interior of British Columbia, which is um, about, you know, the interior, the Rocky mountains of Canada. And for us, the, our favorite destination is Penticton. And from where we live, that's about an eight, eight and a half hour drive, but they have a beautiful lake there called um, Lake Skaha. It's actually a warm lake for the region. Um, and we, you know, we'd get floaties and, and go float. Well, this one time we traveled with my daughter, we didn't have the floaties. All she wanted to do was play in the water. And I was like, no, 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 daddy doesn't like water. So you and mom can go splash around. And I remember looking back at the pictures about a week later and I'm absent from all of them. And she's having such a good time, but there's this one photo where you can see that she's talking to me off camera and you can see the kind of like pleading in her. And at the time, I think she would have been about four years old. And I'm like, that is a memory that I will never be able to get back. That is an experience that I'll never be able to share with her. And all she wanted to do is just play in the water with me. And it was just before my birthday that this occurred. And so on my birthday, I was actually volunteering at a Tony Robbins event. I had just um, finished reading a book uh, that Jocko Wilson had written. And he, and he was talking about the cold showers that uh, the Marines take. And, um, and then Tony Robbins was talking about his cold plunges that he does and all the health benefits. And I'd, I'd watched the, um, uh, special on Wilm Hof, uh, or Wim Hof, um, a few months prior to that too. So this cold water theme was running 
And I was like, I'm going to start taking a cold shower. That is how I'm going to start my morning. Well, I've been doing that now for two and a half years. And um, fast forward a, a year after this incident had happened uh, with my daughter at Skaha Lake, we were invited to go houseboating. And my wife was actually in Ireland at a wedding. And so it was just me and my daughter that were going to go for the week. And for the whole week, every time she said, you want to go jump in the lake, I would. And half the time I would jump in and then she'd be like, I don't really want to go into the water. <laughs> and it was cool. It was fine. You know, normally, like if that had been a year ago and I jump into the lake and I'm now cold and she didn't jump in, I would have been furious. I'd have been like, you know what I just did? I don't like this. But I was so used to it at that point that I, I needed the shock to the system that I was embracing the change that I wanted to get to a point of, of discomfort so that I, I was pushing those boundaries that I started to look at where I had become rigid in other areas of my life. And I think that's one of the greatest blessings that I've gotten from having her in my life is that I'm getting to re-explore the world through the eyes of a child and see things differently because she can illuminate them. And she is very much challenging my perception of the world for better or for worse. So I've, I've quite enjoyed that actually. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hiya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. I liked the focus on the literal using of one's voice. The literal speaking and making yourself heard, that matters. And I think we struggle with that. We being humans struggle with that in a lot of ways. We get worried about our boundaries or we get worried about upsetting other people or I don't know what all we get worried about, but lots of things. And the idea of celebrating being on stage in whatever form that takes. That's important. And it made me realize that while I don't have the acting bug, I don't want to go on stage or behind the camera and sort of do the Hollywood thing. And Hollywood's in visual quotes there. I don't know if you could see it. But I do want to use my voice and I do have things to say. And that's been the best thing about this podcast is that I've had the opportunity to do that. So, Sean, thank you so much for coming to hang out. 
it was just great to meet you and it was fascinating conversation both on and off mic and i hope you'll come back and play again sometime thank you guys for listening i way overscheduled myself this week in the sense that i have 3 recordings today two tomorrow and one on wednesday so that's a decision that I made, but it's to catch up. And they're not all for my show, so I'm giving myself a little bit of a break there. But still, there's new content coming in, and I still have some recordings. I'm catching up. I'm catching up. But some from recordings from just before, just after I got sick with COVID in January, and now I'm trying to find my rhythm again. So I'll be back soon. My next guest is also an actor and has both similar and very different approaches to life and philosophy and the universe. And so I love when that happens, when I talk to two people who are ostensibly on the same wavelength, but come across very differently. So that'll be soon. It's a short episode because they were limited on time. And so hopefully tomorrow, maybe Wednesday, I'll come out with that one. In the meantime, hang in there. And I I don't know, you know, just I hope that you're able to find your voice in whatever form that takes. You matter. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.